Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. You can ask anybody on the worship team, but I have a tendency to go faster and faster and faster. I can often take like a, a funeral march, and it ends up being an Irish jig by the end. So don't worry. So tomorrow we're going to celebrate the 246th birthday of the United States of America. Can any of you kids tell me what important document was signed on July 4th in 1776? Anybody? Daniel? Do you don't know? No? A great answer. Thank you, Chris. That was a great job. So do you know what that means? No? Okay. So a declaration, a declaration is a formal statement. It's either it's an announcement or formal statement. It can be a written one or it can be verbal. An example of a declaration would be like a young man um, asking his girlfriend to marry him. He is declaring his love for her publicly. Or, or another example like a high school student uh, signing a letter of intent to play college athletics. It's, he's declaring that he's playing athletics for this college. And what's meant by independence? Well, it means being free from outside control. How many of you kids look forward to the day when you, when you turn 21 and become an adult? <laughs> All right. You'll no longer be under legal control of your parents. You will be independent. So let's look at the history that led up to the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Many of the first settlers in the early colonies left their European homes in search of religious freedom. In England, for instance, there was a group of people known as the Separatists. And these people believed that the Church of England did not worship God and did not follow the Bible as they thought proper. So a group of them moved to Holland, where they had the freedom to worship as they thought proper. But their contentment was short-lived there because of economic difficulties and because they were afraid that their children would lose their English heritage and forget the English language. So they made plans to sail to the New World. In September of 1620, the Separatists set sail from England aboard a ship called the Mayflower. <coughs> They had, saw, they had sailed from Holland to England in a smaller vessel, and then they boarded the, the Mayflower in England. Including crew members, there were about 140 people on board. And because the, the Mayflower was actually a cargo ship, it was not very comfortable. The accommodations were not great. The 102 separatists were below deck for that majority of that time in an area of 58 feet by 24 feet. That's about half the size of this church. Okay? 102 people there. That was their living room, 
their dining area, their sleeping quarters, their recreation area, and whatever else needs to be done, right? They were in that space for 66 days. And they rarely, if ever, did anyone get to go up above board. One of the ship's crew members was extremely mean to him. He was a nasty man and he spoke harshly to him. And he told him often, he mocked him for believing in God, and he told him often that he couldn't wait to throw any of them into the sea once they were dead. Interestingly enough, somewhere during the voyage, he became really ill. This, this crew member that was being mean, he was very, became very ill, uh, ran a high fever, and with 24, within 24 hours he died. And nobody else caught this infirmity. And so the rest of the crew members were very, very much better to the pilgrims or the separatists, whatever you want to call them. On another note, there was one passenger there, a young man named John Howland. And John Howland just was fed up with being down underneath the hold and not being able to get up the fresh air. And so he made his way upper deck and he got washed overboard. Well, by chance, the ship rolled very far and a rope from the rigging dipped down in the water right next to his hand and he grabbed onto that rope. And they don't know exactly how long he hung on there, but when it was discovered that he was missing, they sent people looking for him, found him overboard and brought him back aboard. He was blue with cold. But that was God's providence saving his life. And the other interesting thing about that is one of the teachers here at Yarrington Elementary School is a direct descendant of John Howland. So I think she is probably pretty glad that God's hand was involved in that too. <laughs> that first winter after landing in the New World, about half of their group died, almost half of them. But they weren't discouraged. These people, often referred to as pilgrims, had their constant focus on God. They believed God would provide for them, and they believed that he would bless their endeavor as long as they kept their faith in him and not in their own abilities. They were a Christian church family, all members helping and caring for the sick, gathering and building, gathering food and hunting for food, building their shelters, and gathering for church services on every Sunday. They were at last free to worship God as they had dreamed, in the manner that they thought proper according to their biblical awareness. As more people came to the New World, the American colonies saw an influx of many different types of people, and most of them were people who came and they wanted to be in a place where they were free to worship God as they thought fit. But additionally, there were a lot of fortune seekers coming to the New World. They were coming for the fabled gold, silver, and other riches. Not unlike today, many of the fortune seekers were driven by purely selfish and, and greedy, greedy reasons. They wanted the greed, they wanted riches, the notoriety, power, and the fame. As you can imagine, this kind of people brought a lot of corruption and a lot of problems to the colonies. And as England and France and Spain and other nations 
who had colonies in the New World learned of the treasures and riches here, they imposed their rules and their taxes on the colonies, eventually causing the 13 colonies to seek another way of government, to rule over them the way they wanted, to be free of the rule from Spain, England, or whoever. The colonists, through their experience of godly leadership of men like William Bradford, John Winthrop, and other God-fearing men, desired to set up a new system of government never before seen in the world. They wanted to create a self-governing form of government. In 1734, after many people had been ambivalent about church and started drifting away from church in the colonies, a man named Jonathan Edwards, a minister from Massachusetts, preached a series of, of um, sermons known as the start of the Great Awakening. In 1736, he was joined by a young man named George Whitfield, who was from England. George Whitfield traveled around the country preaching the salvation message wherever he went. It's calculated that he preached in his lifetime somewhere around 18,000 sermons sometimes as many as three or four in one day. His message united colonies together as Christians, rather than separate distinct religions like Quakers, Episcopalians, or Presbyterians, or Catholics. The unifying work of the Holy Spirit united the colonies as they had never seen. A majority of the colonists turned back to God, and they built community with their brothers and sisters in Christ. This unifying action helped the resolve of the colonists as they became more dissatisfied with their relationship with England and the king and his oppressive reign. So on July 4th, 1776, that's 246 years ago tomorrow, representatives of the 13 colonies signed the Declaration of Independence, proclaiming themselves a free, independent and self-governed nation. They renounced their citizenship in England, with England, and, and they entered into a time of great testing and resolve known as the Revolutionary War, which ultimately ended in the formal recognition of the United States of America. The USA was formed as a representative republic, not a democracy, as many people think. The founders, many of whom were strong Christian men, designed a government with a weak central government and strong state government. Founding fathers, through the, through the Declaration of Independence, made a formal statement. We talked about what a declaration is. They made this formal statement that this nation was no longer a colony of England, but that it was a free and independent country out from under the control of England and the monarchy. Just as the first settlers, as a Christian community, cared for each other, these founding fathers pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to each other. The success of the colony depended not on their strength, not on their supplies or their wealth or any physical traits. The successful colonies, the successful colonies all had in common a desire to work as a Christian community, and to bring God's word and light to this nation. But there's something even more important than the Declaration of Independence. 
that it was a key to the success of the United States as a sovereign nation. It was also a key to the providential blessing that they saw in the United States as it grew into the greatest nation and most prosperous nation this world has ever seen. The early history of the nation looked very similar to the history of Israel. The early history of Israel, if you've read the Old Testament, you will see the similarities. There was a pattern in the Old Testament in the history of Israel. The pattern goes something like this. The people tore, turned to God in dependence on him. God richly blesses the Israeli people and he gives them success over their enemies. Israel falls away from God in sin. Enemies overrun Israel and capture them and defeat them. Israel turns back to God in worship and praise and dependence. And God delivers Israel from his enemies, and the cycle starts again. If you read the Old Testament, it happens over and over and over. The one guiding principle that these people, one of the ones that they, they depended on, was in Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 6. It says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall you, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. So that passage was really a kind of a guiding light for them, and why they were prosperous because they followed God. So if you again, if you read the Old Testament, you see that pattern over and over. So what was the secret that Israel had to prosperity as a nation and as individuals? The same thing that was here in this country. The secret to our country's blessings and prosperity was not on the independent spirit of the people. It was not on the strong will of the people. It was not on the brilliant leadership from George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or any other president. It was not the wealth the resources that were present in this new nation. The secret ingredient for ancient Israel, for the newly formed United States of America, and for this nation in its present form, is another type of declaration. It's a declaration made by individuals and corporately. I call it the Declaration of Dependence. Every time in biblical history when the people depended on God for his guidance and sustenance, health and protection, they prospered as individuals and as a nation. Every time they turned away from God, God had no choice but to lift his covering and his blessing and let his people suffer the consequences. But when they humbled themselves and turned from sin, as it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, many of you are familiar with this, it 
It says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. God was faithful, and every time they did that, he would heal their land and bless the people. Not only was this true in biblical times, it was true for the earliest explorers like Christopher Columbus, for the people who came to the New York New World for religious freedom, and for the founding fathers. It also holds true today. In fact, throughout the history of mankind, from Adam and Eve until now, the productivity of the land is always based on the righteousness of the people. I'm pretty sure that the discord, the divisiveness, the violence we see in our world, as well as the difficulties for food production here and around the world due to storms, droughts, heat waves, and extreme weather events, they're all a result of our sinfulness as individuals and as a nation. God cannot continue to bless the people who despise the Creator of the universe. This is the only way, the only way out of this is fervent prayer and a return to dependence on God for our food, our sustenance, our health, and prosperity. But we, it cannot be a return to godly life only as individuals. We have to be a loving, caring, giving, selfless group of individuals held together by a bond of servanthood as demonstrated by Christ. As it says in Romans, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we... Though many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. That's Romans 12, 4, and 5. We have to meet the needs of each other as a community of believers, and so that people will come to know Christ, and we will see what a, they can see what a part of being the body of Christ is. And as a body of believers... We have to do as our, founding, as our founding fathers did and pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor to the body of Christ. And this will enrich, strengthen, and unify the body and bring glory to God. So in preparing for this subject, I did a little search on the internet and I actually found a document called the Declaration of Dependence. I think it's a great reminder to each of us of how reliance on God should be expressed. But before I get to that, I want to share with you an experience I had a few years ago, believe it or not, involving tomato plants. Okay? And some of you have heard my little spiel on this, but the reason I think it's appropriate here is because in order to be dependent upon God, in order to declare your dependence on God, first you have to know and accept God as your personal Savior. And although it's normally a, a moment in your life when you accept God, it's also a journey that lasts your entire life. So about five years ago, I did an experiment grafting tomatoes. I had been to a nursery, and I saw that grafted tomato plants cost about four times as much as regular tomatoes. 
tomato plants. And I thought, hmm, I wanted to experiment to see if we could do something like that and see if it would be a viable um, exercise for a ranch, something we could sell. The idea behind grafting is that you take a, a vigorous, disease-resistant rootstock and you graft a tomato that's known for its um, tasty fruit onto that root. The root simply is called rootstock, and the grafted part is called the scion. Okay? You, so you choose the root, you choose the fruit, and then you join them at the shoot. Not only is this process used in tomatoes, but it's used in lots of different plants, from fruit trees and nut trees to grapes, roses, and many other, many other plants. In fact, there's some fruit trees that they are so similar that they can have one rootstock they might have plums on one branch and peaches on another branch and some other fruit on another branch. So it's, it's very common to do and a very cool thing. It, this process itself is really simple, especially with, with tomatoes. Okay? You choose two plants. One is the rootstock and one is the scion. And they have to be about equal size. Then they're, they're held next to each other. And just with a, a straight razor blade, you make one cut, kind of a diagonal cut and you cut the, the fruit stalk or the scion off of one, you cut and throw away the top of the other. And then you take a little silicone clip and put the two together and put that clip over the side. Then you have to trim off all of the extra leaves on the scion except the growing bud. Okay? Because you don't want that plant to be trying to do much while it's healing. Then you have to put them in a high humidity environment and in darkness for about 48 hours. Then you can start um, introducing them to light, little by little. And within a couple weeks, they can be in full light, and a few weeks later, they're ready to be planted into the ground. But one caution you have to be with any um, grafted plant is the side of the graft cannot be buried in the soil. Otherwise, what happens is that scion will send out roots and, and use its own roots rather than roots from the rootstock. So then it's susceptible to diseases, it's not as hardy or anything, so it loses all the advantage of the ground. So if you can, sh let me show um, image one there, please, Ashley. So this is a picture of some of the, some of the um, tomatoes that I grafted, you can see all of the, most of the leaves are trimmed off the top. There's just a few leaves up there in the growing bud. And then you see that little plastic clip there that's actually holding the two parts of the two different plants together. So that summer I grew somewhere around 80 rootstock plants. And I had four or five different varieties of um, heirloom tomatoes as a scion. And my first attempt at the grafting was Fairly successful. I had about 85% of the plants survive. But in April that year, we set them out in a, in a hoop house we had on the ranch. I set 44 grafted plants out there. Well, all went well until we had a particularly cold night. And even in hoop houses, 40 of the plants got frozen. I guess I didn't graft them to a frost-protected rootstock. <laughs> I've grafted some more tomatoes for my own use over the last couple of years, and I don't see a huge difference 
between the grafted tomatoes and the non-grafted was still an interesting experiment. And I did one other experiment where we were growing watermelon on the ranch at that time, and they were great tasting watermelon. But we took a watermelon plant and grafted it onto a pumpkin root. And because the pumpkin root is much more hardy and durable. And um, they did okay, but if you compare the taste of the two fruits together, there was just a slight squash flavor to the, to the Not much, and if it was the only watermelon you had, you probably wouldn't notice it. But there was a slight flavor. But the reason I bring this up is because of the spiritual lessons I learned from grafting the plants. So, if you look at this picture, you'll see, is that, which number is that, two? Three, let's go try number two. Yeah, that's a better one. Okay, so you can see the graft site right there, where the little flip is. And just above it, you see those little white things growing out of the stalk? Those are roots. Those are that scion trying to send roots down to, to the ground. Okay, and then down at the bottom, very bottom of that picture, you see little leaves? Those are the rootstock trying to send shoots up because it wants to produce too. So they're, they're not exactly working together right yet. You just keep trimming those things off and pretty soon everything does pretty good. But I believe that the grafting process is much like our rebirth as a Christian follower. Okay, We're born and raised in a world that has secular influence wherever we turn. We have roots in the secular world, or the sin world, whatever you want to call it. No matter who you are, you have more roots in this world. Jesus Christ is the rootstock of purity, completeness, salvation, compassion, etc. When we accept Christ, we denounce our citizenship of this world and become citizens of the Christian world. Since we're grafted to the rootstock of Jesus, we have a new life. But even when Jesus provides everything we need, even though the world offers us little that is beneficial to our spiritual walk, we continually want to send roots down into the secular world, just like this, because of our sin nature. We're just like those grafted scions. It has total sustenance from the new root, but it desires to be eroded in the old, sinful nature. That's very, very much like my life, I know, and I, maybe some of you can agree. But for that reason alone, I think that the declaration of dependence is important in the daily life of every believer. We have to continually refocus on our life to align it with Christ. We have to continually confess our sins before our Father and ask for His forgiveness. We have to repeatedly suppress our fleshly desires and recommit our lives to the service of Christ and Christ's family. As we enter a time of more and more chaos and confusion in the world, this declaration helps us present our beliefs in a clear and concise manner to ourselves, for rededication to the Lord, and to others, so that they can know the source of our peace, our strength, unity, and our love. I've printed out 
copies of this Declaration of Dependence. I'd like a little help with a couple people to hand them out to everybody. There are these sheets right down here. You can get a couple people like Clint. Thank you, Lyle. And then we're going to read this Declaration of Dependence. This is actually found from uh, a company called, uh, or a group called JAMA. I forget what that stands for, but it was published in 2008. I was able to find it on the internet. And I think it very well expresses how we should be dependent on our declaration of dependence on God. Please take these with you. And if you want, you can pin them on your refrigerator next to your kids' drawing and all that. Just as a reminder. They didn't make any copies. Okay, we're we're going to read this. You can follow along as I read it. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for a people to declare their dependence upon God, to proclaim their allegiance to his word, and to reaffirm their calling as ambassadors of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, an appropriate response to God requires that they should declare before humankind the causes which bind them to this station. Therefore, we as citizens of heaven, inheritors of the incorruptible and unending kingdom of God, children of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone, members of the church, both visible and invisible, under Christ the head thereof, and Christian citizens of these United States of America, hereby solemnly publish and declare the following. We declare our dependency on the one true and living God, the Father Almighty, the Sovereign King, who is immortal and eternal, infinitely perfect, both in his love and his holiness, who alone is the creator of all things, visible and invisible, including this nation, and who sustains and sovereignly rules over the United States of America. We declare our dependency on the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the one true and living God, the judge of this nation, who being very an eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father Almighty, the one and only way to salvation through faith, and together with whom we are heirs of God's glory and kingdom, and all that is His. We declare our dependency on the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, divinely equal to God and Jesus Christ, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son, that has from the time, from time to time in the course of history, included this nation's and as sovereignly directed by Christ in response to prayers of God's people, descended upon the group of God's people at the same time, an outpouring over and above its work of personal regeneration, illumination, and sanctification. We declare our dependency on the Holy Scripture, the infallible Word of God written in the Old and New Testament, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and has supreme authority in all matters of faith, life, thought, and conduct. 
and which promises that God's people, that if God's people humble themselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from their wicked, sinful ways, then God will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and will restore and heal their land. Accordingly, we declare our love for the United States of America as this nation was formed and created by God, is sustained and sovereignly ruled by Him, and thusly we, God's people, chose by Him to live therein, but not of it, are co-heirs with Lord Jesus Christ and all that is God's, including this nation, and are called by the Word of God to seek in peace, restoration, and prosperity. We declare our love for the people of the United States of America, those within and without the household of God, as we are commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ to love our neighbors as ourselves, in word and deed, and to help those in want. Therefore, motivated and compelled by our love for the United States of America and its people, in an age when individualism, secularism, and relativism are heralded as a panacea, we declare that the triune God and the gospel of Jesus Christ are the only hope for this nation, the only answer to its ills, the only repairer of broken families, the only salve of wounded souls, the only pacifier of angry hearts, the only lasting comfort to the morning, the only guide by which decisions and decrees are to be determined, the only solution for racism, sexism, and the class and generational conflict, and the only solution, only standard by which character and culture are to be examined, the only solution for injustice and abuse, the only restorer of the afflicted, the only foundation for all knowledge, wisdom, and teaching, the only authority by which all proclaimed truths are to be tested, and the only rock on which all should be stand, all should stand. And for the support of this declaration and the manifestation of its intents in a time when many have professed belief in God, have lifestyles shaped by selfish gain, security, and convenience, where consumerism has replaced commitment to the local church, where unmerited health and wealth are equated with God's merited favor, where gossip factionalism and insularity are prevalent, where prayers resemble lists of personal wants, where the word of God has been diluted on the pulpit for the sake of the wider appeal, fear of offense, and worldly relevance, where doctrinal legalism has trumped humility, and where emotionalism and cultural tolerance has trumped biblical truths, we declare with firm reliance on the promise of the Holy Scripture, repentance for these wicked and sinful ways, of which we may or may not be complicit, and further declare our desire to see healing and revival in this nation, an extraordinary outpouring and baptism of the Holy Spirit on God's people therein, creating a heightened sense of the presence, majesty, glory, and power of God never heretofore experienced in this generation. And to this end, for the glory of God, we appeal to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions and mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fervent prayers, and our sacred honor.
We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urintonvinyardfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.